As, as a job that I really had no interest in or knowledge about before I started, um, it's it's been pretty cool working there for like four years. Yeah. Um, it's one of the one of the interesting things about it is that I'm uh, contract, so I'm like I'm I'm hourly, mm-hmm. and whenever I'm not in the shop, I don't get paid. But it's pretty open and pretty lenient as far as um, like leaves of absences go. So I've done two residencies, one for two nice. weeks and one for a month since I've been there, and it's just like. I had to give them a couple of, you know, like a week ahead notice of like, yeah, I'm going to be gone for a month in June. I mean, that's the dream. Like if you can find, if you're an artist and you can find a job that's flexible with time like that and figure out a way to make it work, Mm -hmm. we're encountering that now. Like, you know, I'm a freelancer too. So like I'm, I'm just on contract. So I get to say kind of when I work, um, but yeah, you know, having that flexibility, you can't even apply for stuff if you, if you're in a nine to five job, that's going to be like. I, yep. I can't even imagine how that would work. Yeah, yeah. I like one of the one of the reasons that I've thought about going back to school for a PhD to get like a teaching thing is that teachers are one of the the few other pro- professions that have big chunks of time that you technically don't need to be doing like the actual job. Yeah. Um, although I know that like the uh, the state of teachers and teaching in the United States is not the best. Yeah. Um, which has been one of the things that has prevented me from, <laughs> from yeah. going back and getting a PhD just because, like... Uh... Well, I can weigh in on that a little bit because I used to be a... Um, I was an academic librarian. Oh, cool. Um, so I was in higher ed for six years and got tenured and... Wow. It was nice in some regards, but mm-hmm. ultimately I ended up leaving because of the politics and... Yeah. Some things that I don't like about higher ed. So it's nice. You know, I had summers off. It it was cool. Mm-hmm. It was There were a lot of really good things about that job, but I'm so much happier freelancing. Yeah. Just, well, I, I feel like, like if you're a teacher, especially at a university, you're in, if, in order to make that like a sustainable living, you can't just be a teacher. You have to be like in involved in like the programs or if, like if you're the head of a department or you know like you you're managing you know, like other teachers or just you're involved with so much other stuff that it's not just teaching. And I mm-hmm. feel like with one of the things that I, I really enjoy about cabinet making is that like I can be just a cabinet maker. Like all yeah. all the skills that I've built up since I've been there have all been in the um like towards the benefit of being a better cabinet maker. Yeah. And then once I leave, since I physically can't bring any of my work home with me, like I'm It's yeah, there's no like committee work, there's no emails you have to like maintain. There's no there's no grading that you don't yeah. re- technically get paid for or all this like outside of like the actual time that you put into the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it's in we do things that are so I mean maybe not like low stakes, but you know, like if there's a cabinet that needs to be like the size needs to be changed, mm-hmm. but it's at the end of the day. You're like, yeah, just do it tomorrow. Right. There's not a lot of pressure, and it it also must be really nice to just make something with your hands and have it be done. 
Like, you know, there's so many things that are really yep. amorphous and they're never really done, like writing. Yep. You know, it could keep changing yep. forever. Yep. But yep. like yep. a cabinet, if it's working and it looks fine, it's done then. Yeah, right? like we when we when we have installs and stuff, like the cabinets leave the shop. Yeah. And they never come back. Like yeah. parts of the cabinets, like if there's an issue with the door or the drawer front or something or the drawer, those will come back. But the cabinet itself, once it's put in place, mm-hmm. It isn't. It never comes back into the shop, which is a really nice like that. That sort of continual um, like energy or things moving and kind of continuously in kind of just one direction. Yep. Um, we have we're working on two really really large jobs right now, and we have like no more storage space in the shop, and starting to, like I'm starting to get antsy about it just because like <laughs> I know that we have other big jobs coming up, and we can't do anything yet with any of those things because we're waiting on stuff to come in and i'm like i just want i want them gone i don't like yeah like we have cabinets that are stacked i don't know like like this tall oh my god not including pantry cabinets that are themselves like this tall um but yeah it's just it's it's i feel like uh bookmaking is the kind of kinesthetic counterpart to that for me Mm -hmm. that you know, like manuscripts, manuscript may never actually be done, but you get to the point where it's like, I can't, I can't do anything more with it now. Mm-hmm. And then it turns into a book and then like you make the book and the book's done. There's this thing that like, if it needs to be changed, I got to get it like next, next edition or next printing of it. But it, it in and of itself is a, a finished thing. And I very, I, yeah, the the fact that you can you can stamp and be like done, mm-hmm. I can move on is is wonderful. Instead yeah. of having the, like always the thought of like, well, like I could I could tinker with that a little bit until I die. Yeah. <laughs> Hello friends, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 9 of So Poetry. Um, I am glad to have an actual in-person uh, uh, guest today, because the last couple of runs of people have been over Skype, so it's, I don't know, it's always nicer to, to be sitting down and talking with someone. Um, and that guest happens to be Aaron Dorney, um, who is a, a recent poet, correct? Yes. Is the, oh wait! What do you mean? Well, I mean that you you are has okay. Maybe that's the first question. Has has your have you been writing poetry as long as you've been writing other other types of writing? Um. Because you like at least the book that's being released later today is your first collection of poetry. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah. I have been writing poetry since about two thousand twelve, two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. Okay. So. I've always been a writer, but right. mostly like journalism and stuff like that. Okay, so getting into poetry has been a relatively recent yeah. endeavor. Okay, cool. Well, before we get to that, uh, would you like to introduce yourself or talk a little bit about who you are and what you're up to? Aside from the fact that there's book launch later today, which I'm very excited about. Me too. Um, yeah, so I'm Erin. I uh, just moved back to Pennsylvania from Minnesota where I was living for three years, where my partner was getting his MFA. Ooh. So we're back now, back east. We really missed the east coast. 
the Midwest is great, <laughs> but we just miss the East Coast. Um, but yeah, we're just kind of trying to reacclimate and figure out what's next, where we're gonna go. Cool. What we're gonna do. What what did did you and your partner miss the same things about the East Coast, or did you each have your own sort of unique like I miss this and he misses that? I think they were pretty pretty closely aligned. Like we obviously missed our family. It was like a really you know, kind of a long journey back, you know, over the holidays and stuff. But mm. we, like, really never found good pizza out in Minnesota. Really? Like, that was the one thing. We were always trying these different pizza places, and there was, like, so much cheese on the pizza. <laughs> and I think because <laughs> it's so close to Wisconsin, and they love cheese. Oh, uh, wow. I didn't but, even like, think yeah, about that. We could never find the good pizza, so, like, we already have gotten pizza, like, three times in two weeks <laughs> here, and we love it. <laughs> nice. But, yeah, just little stuff like that. What what is something about the Midwest that you liked better than the East Coast? Well, one thing I loved about Minnesota is that it's a absolutely like stunning, beautiful state. If you go up north to this place they call the North Shore, it's along the um, Lake Superior, and it's mm-hmm. like got the most beautiful rocks. And I'm like kind of a rock collector, so like that was awesome. And it's got these cliffs where it was like sheer cliffs down into the lake. And the lake is just massive. Mm. It was was just so beautiful up there. I really, really love that part of it. Cool. Mm -hmm. Did, um, the, the Loft Literary Center is in Minneapolis, right? Did you, did you ever make it out there to? Yeah, we were there quite often. Um, it was like about an hour and a half from where we lived. We were like more in the South, but, um, I took classes there, a couple of workshops, and Ooh. it's the is, most stunning place. Is it is it as cool as I imagine that it is based upon like the Instagram and the photos that I've seen? Yeah, <laughs> like that's real. That's not like they're just staging that. Like the books, the the uh, Milkweeds bookstore and the Book Arts Center. It's just like you're in there and you're like, I never leave. I'm never leaving. <laughs> Everything I need is here. I they are so there are like three three institutions that I continually check to see if they have jobs that are open. Um, Total Publishing, which is a um, Asian-centric uh, book publisher that has offices in Vermont, London, and Tokyo. Constantly, like twice a month, I'm on there checking to see if they have if they have a position open. And they're looking for an editor, but I don't have I don't have enough. Just quite there yet. Yeah. Um, so they're one, uh, Pen America is another one that I'm constantly just, cause they, they do a lot of tremendous work and I would love mm-hmm. to work for them. And Love Literary Center is one of the other ones that I'm constantly just like, do you, I, I would move, I would move out there for you. If yeah. You, if you, if it you would be take. worth it. It would be that it's a wonderful city. Well, both of them, <laughs> the cities. Cool. Okay. So, yeah. uh, poetry. So, <laughs> um, okay, so you, so what, um, what caused you to start writing, or I guess like what, what was the, the impetus to your first endeavors into, into writing poetry? Um, well, I had to get my, uh, master's, I had to get a second master's for my previous job as an academic librarian. They they forced you to get one? Yes. I mean, it was a requirement for tenure because I didn't have a PhD. Oh. So in the library world, you have your um, master's degree in library yes. science. Mm-hmm. And then that's 
in the lib in the library field, that's considered your terminal degree. But once you get into a university setting, everyone else has PhDs, so oh. you have to get a second master's to equal them. So if so, if you were in, so like if you worked at the Pratt or like a a, a like a local but large library chain, the MFA would be would be enough. But because it's a university setting, they want. I think it depends on each university. I think oh. each university is different. So the one I was at, I had to, before I could go up for tenure, I had to get a second um, master's degree. I could get a PhD, but right. like, yeah. I'm not going to work full time and get a PhD. But so, so I chose to get a degree from in the, sta- in the state system where I was working because it would be free. Mm-hmm. So I got my master's in English with a focus in creative writing because that was like what was nearby. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is when I really started writing poetry. You know, I mean, I studied under Kim Bridgeford, who's a formal poet based mm. in Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, she kind of introduced me to the idea of poetry as like, <laughs> I hesitate to even say this, but... <laughs> I'm going to <laughs> like poetry as more of a lifestyle in terms of like the community things you can do and organizations mm-hmm. you can get involved with. Like I was kind of in the dark about all that. I was very much in the library world and not really in the writing world at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I ended up getting that degree and I eventually left my library job and now I'm a poet. Yes. <laughs> hmm. So we're, um, what what was so i i'm assuming that in what the university that you went to i they had the like the three main tracks of like fiction nonfiction, and in poetry what what caused you to, to go to edge towards poetry versus the other two i guess at first it just seemed easier <laughs> And reflecting back on that now, I don't know, you know, but, um, I don't know. I just, I'm drawn more to like a shorter form and appreciate all of the different like diversity of styles that poems can take. Whereas, you know, I kind of, until recently in, you know, discovering experimental fiction and stuff like that and like really what very good essays can do. Mm-hmm. I think I kind of thought that poetry is, w- would be the one that I could just do the weirdest stuff in. Yeah. I mean, I, f- I feel like that's probably still, well, I think that there's, there's probably more like this might sound, I don't know if this is a weird like kind of con- uh, contradictory thing to say, but like more avant-garde groundwork that's been laid. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I feel like, I mean, I think that that like poetry does kind of have that openness and that, that elasticity that you can push it and mold it into these, like you can push somewhere and you can create space to mm-hmm. do something like E.E. E. Cummings. That's very weird. Or like any of the stuff that the surrealists or the cubists were writing back mm-hmm. in like the, Oh geez, like the third, third, no, forties, whenever they were around, um, and I feel like with, like you said, like within like fiction, there's not really there are like different genres of fiction, but there's not really like different ways to write fiction until you get into the more experimental stuff that mm-hmm. seems like it didn't really start kicking around until like po- like postmodern era and like deconstructions of stuff and. Right. Um, Hmm. I th- I will say though that lately I've been trying to break into creative nonfiction with 
not very good success <laughs> at all. It's like very, it's so, it's so interesting. Cause like in my mind, I'm like, I'm a good poet. I could write a lyric essay. Like, how can that be that much different? And then like, I try, but it's so hard to, it's so hard to actually just say something very clearly and like state it just outright. Whereas like with poetry, I guess you're allowed to be a little, a little more like hinting at things. Yeah. Yes. And I, I think that, so we in, in the, um, in my MFA, like my cohort, there's lots of like outside of class discussion about, um, like the relationship between like prose writing, fiction and then nonfiction prose writing and then poetry and kind of like where they, like if you, if you're looking at it at a spe- on a spectrum, kind mm-hmm. of like where they all fall. Um, and from the people that I've talked to, the general consensus was that creative nonfiction kind of exists somewhere in between like fiction prose and poetry because you're you're writing in you're trying to convey things in prose and you're using some of the conventions of like a narrative and a story but you're not necessarily like you're even though you're conveying like i guess more or less like a, a narrative it's not the plot of the narrative that's the important thing. It's like the the things that it makes you feel and yeah. the sort of like the I don't know the the colors that exist below it that that come out that is I think much closer to the work that poetry does. That mm-hmm. it's not like you can have like a sound poem that doesn't like grammatically or narratively mean anything. It's just like it. The basis of it is what do you feel or what's your reaction when these words are said. Or put next to each other, mm-hmm. um, so like that work of just like what's what's the, I don't know, like what what feelings does it bring out in you? I feel like is closer to what creative nonfiction is attempts to do, mm-hmm. and it's just it's it's doing it in more like long form way than poetry does. But um, you can also be I think a lot more elliptical, um, which I think gets to like the in poetry you can hint and imply and not have to be as forthright that you can get kind of like elliptically around stuff and it's Mm -hmm. not like with, uh, and I guess some fiction doesn't do the ops to not do this too, but fiction feels like it's more or less sort of like there's the beginning of a story and then end of a story. Mm -hmm. And like, there is always those pieces of it and it can be rearranged and how, how they're conveyed, but it's always like building on. Yeah. That it's like, you could, you could cut them, like you could disassemble it and reassemble it into like, chronology like this happened here this happened here this happened here whereas like with um creative nonfiction, it can be sort of more cyclical or more you know like explorative in what it's describing and not necessarily reach a point or a conclusion other than just like it's it's just it's done right is there ever really an end or is it just like stopping for a while so you can think about what it means yep which i feel like lots of i think with poems they do that too and i think it's Mm -hmm. also with in like in my experience like essays and stuff it's not necessarily trying to convey the complete story but more like a chunk of it for the emotional effect mm-hmm. and i feel like that's poetry does more deals more with like the moments of stuff instead of the, the totality of you know like it's it's a day that can either like a day that can be boiled down into like this emotional uh, or distilled down to like an emotional core or like five minutes out of this day that i something happened and like bam yeah that's it a moment yeah um so how did 
and I, I've been curious about this. Why poems after Shia LaBeouf? Well, so I started working on this in 2014. Okay. And in so two- kind of kind of the height of his. Yes. Okay. This was yes the height of his. 2014 is when he did the performance. Um, where he wore the paper bag on his head at the Berlin mm-hmm. Film Festival. And then just prior to that, I think in 2013, is when he started getting um, called out for plagiarizing various people. Oh. I, I don't know if I was aware of that. Or I was, and it sort of just got edged mm-hmm. out. With... Hmm. Yeah, so he, um, he's been accused of plagiarizing a number of times, um, stealing some work from Daniel Klaus, the graphic novelist, and oh. um, then even plagiarizing his apologies for plagiarizing. <laughs> so this, this was all like in my mind, and um, I thought, well, wouldn't that be hilarious? I could plagiarize him, but <laughs> it would be legitimate because this is a form that people know and accept in the literary world. Mm-hmm. So it kind of started out as like almost a joke. <laughs> and everyone's always asking me like, "Do you are you like a fan of his work?" And like I honestly didn't even really know about him very much before then. I've never seen Holes, I've never seen even Stevens like I started watching his movies after I started the project, which mm-hmm. is cool, but yeah, people seem to think it's like a fandom thing, and it's <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> and are these, are the poems erasures? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, all the poems in the book are erasures of uh, inter- interviews he's done with the media. Okay. So it's like, I think the interviews span 2005 to 2016. Wow. And they're in like various publications like GQ, Entertainment Weekly, mm-hmm. you know, celebrity sort of um, right. yeah, publications. Yeah, yeah. I think there's one New York Times interview. Um, but yeah, that's where I got all the source text. Are, are the poems, is like each poem, do you have any ones that are composites? Like you take a chunk from this interview and a chunk from this interview, or are they all pretty much self-contained to like, I mean, maybe not the entire interview, but the each, you know, it's like from from this one segment of this one particular interview. They're all... Um, the source texts are all just the one interview, so it'll. Okay. It, I don't. I don't have any like composite like that, but I do. What I do have is so, he did this. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but he did this interview with a reporter at Dazed, where they wore GoPros on their heads. Do you remember this? No. Okay. Well, anyway, so he, Shia LaBeouf and this reporter. Um, they had an interview where they were totally silent and they both wore GoPros attached to their heads and they were just looking at each other. And so, and they live streamed it, obviously. Because, <laughs> of course. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Um, so before they had that interview, like leading up to it, they had a, um, you know, four or five week long email communication back and forth. And when they published that silent interview, they also published the, the <laughs> full text of their email exchange. So that one was this that was like the source text for that was just like so long mm-hmm. and you know I took all her parts out and just left in the right, things right, he right. said but um that was really fun and I did end up making a couple different poems out of that one because it was so long and then I tried re- I tried so hard and this did not work out um so this is a failure story but I tried uh they were chatting over my birthday so I wanted to write a poem of things that Shia LaBeouf said on my birthday <laughs> 
But it was just like, it, I couldn't make it work. It was like, I really wanted it to work, but it didn't end up working. That's for the next book. Yeah. <laughs> so what, like, were you introduced to erasure poetry while you were working through, like, academically through the MFA, or did you kind of just encounter it, like, ambiently in the... In the wild. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I definitely, yeah, I was not taught it in school. Okay. Um, so we were at like a community workshop in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And um, uh, I think it was Jenny Hill, Jennifer Hill. She's a poet and performer. And she was teaching a workshop about just like general creativity. And one of the exercises that she did that she taught us about was blackout poetry mm -hmm. and I just loved it like I was like what you can make a poem out of like anything and so I was like obsessed with it for a while I mean I kind of still am I guess but yeah she's the first one who introduced me to it and then I just kept doing it with my friends and practicing it and and then I discovered you know the found poetry review which um Jenny Baker founded and it's no longer in it's no longer being updated but there's a lot of really great resources hmm. i just learned about like all the different types of found poetry that there are like erasure is just one of them there's tons of other ways to use found i don't know objects. if i know other oh you mean like in a like more of a collage or like actual physical things instead of like writings yeah just any sort of like found language hmm. you know just incorporating that in or I guess a cento would could technically be considered mm -hmm. found poetry. Yeah, yeah. So those listeners who don't know, centos are poems that each line uh, of the poem is um, taken from another, like a different source material, and it's usually so. If you have like ten a poem that's ten lines, it would be like ten different lines from ten different pieces of works that you kind of just put into uh, an order that more or less makes some sort of at least emotional sense. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. yeah. Are there, are there other ones that you've, that you've other types of found or modes of found poetry that you've worked with aside from erasure that you also enjoy or has erasure sort of been the, like the, the eclipser of the rest of them? Yeah. Erasure is kind of like the one for me, although I have, what I have done is written some other more like quote unquote regular poems that incorporate um, some language. Mm -hmm. So, like, for example, I have this one poem where I was, like, looking at a geology book. Ooh. And I just, like, had it open mm -hmm. next to my computer. So I would just, like, look over there every once in a while and, like, borrow something. So, and I really liked that, especially when it's, like, a weird source like that, you know, kind of scientific or something. And you're writing about something like your body and you're mm -hmm. using all this rock language. <laughs> Uh, so, so I don't know if that's like a technical type of found poetry, but you know, I would always like cite that in my, mm -hmm. you know, at the, at the, would bottom. you, if you were to do that, would you, um, like key off those sections in italics or would you just like incorporate it as just like another line? I just incorporate it as another line. Okay. But I do always make sure to like cite my sources because that's, I think where you can get into a little bit of like, yeah sticky <laughs> you could get accused of plagiarizing i like i mean if you're using a direct right quote. which which is a weird sort of like i don't know if i've ever thought about the um like if if you if you 
took a line from, let's say, like a geology textbook mm -hmm. and put it into a poem, would that poem, and you didn't cite anything, you just sort of like lifted it, if that poem would be then considered like plagiarized or would it be an allusion to this thing or like a direct, I, that's something like I've never really thought about because that's yeah. like, you know, I've read so many poems um, from people that just, that have like quotes of other people mm -hmm. in it that sometimes quotes, sometimes italicized, it's usually like offset in some way to, to show that it's not like, mm -hmm. like it's, it's in the poem, but it's a, it's a little bit like different somehow, but like I've, I've, it's just, I guess just sort of assumed that, you know, it's like, that's just, that's kind of what, just what, you know, it's just what happens. Yeah. But, I think, I mean, I think my take on it is a little bit different because I am trained as a librarian. Right, yeah. And, like, that has been, like, pounded into my head during schooling. Right, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, you have to cite your sources, you have to give credit. Um, so that's something that I feel really strongly about. Like, doing in my work, I feel like at least you have to, like, give a nod to wherever. Right. But there is a certain amount. I mean, like, at, like everything has already been said, that can, <laughs> you know, that could possibly have been said. So, like, right. you have to figure out where... The line is for you in terms mm -hmm. of how much can I use before I need to like add something to the bottom or the top or like put it in italics. Right. Because um, there is, I mean, there's like fair use rules, but usually it's so small amount of text if you're in a, if it's in right. a poem that. Yeah, and or like like erasures, you know, yeah. like if you, which is its own, I feel like unique sort of, like it that you're you're taking a source text and finding some other text that exists in there so mm -hmm. you are technically using the language in the words that have that have already been that already exist there and can be like just in like copyrighted to someone else but you're repurposing them for something like totally different yeah and that's like i mean that's the key with the with erasures is that you're trying to create a thing that is completely new. Right. And you're not trying to just rehash what's already there. It's right. not just like a slimmer version of the interview or whatever. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. You want to try to like transcend that original meaning to like create a new meaning and that, you know, is part of why you're allowed to do that with the erasure. Yeah. There is oh, I'm going to have to So there is a there's an erasure. I think there's a fairly famous erasure called I think Nets. Uh, oh yeah, by Jen Bourbon. I think. Um, Is it the Shakespeare sonnets? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Um, which to me is like I feel like one of the one of the few instances that could also be a little dicey that usually like you take like you like you take an interview or like a humament is like this mm -hmm. big like long philosophical book that is then repurposed or like transmuted into poetry mm -hmm. whereas with nets it started as poetry and then it was shifted into like another type of poetry right um which i like i wonder but since it's shakespeare and since it's like i'm, I'm assuming probably at the point of like fair use mm -hmm. now that it's sort of well i mean i think that just goes to show that you can use any source text for erasure it doesn't doesn't have to be an unpoetic thing that you use but um you know in some writers i've actually heard will write their own text and then erase their own text Ooh. so you know if if 
you know, for whatever reason, you know, use a letter, or write a longer piece, and then go back and erase their own mm-hmm. words. So that's another thing you can do as well. Hmm. I I think it would be interesting to do um, for to like to start to have like an erasure cycle where you start with a source text, and then someone does an erasure of that, and then someone does an erasure of that erasure, and just like see. But to have the whole process, because at some point it's going to just be like a word yeah. or two. But just to like to see how far you could take it where it still has some sort of like poetic meaning that mm-hmm. it could stand by itself without the rest of the lineage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that would be great to see like all the iterations lined up next to each other. Yeah. It's a good project. Write that down. <laughs> Please, uh, well, okay. So if anybody is listening and want to do that, go for it. Or if you've already done it, yeah, let us know. Y- yeah. <laughs> Because that would be um, a really neat, like, installation piece where mm-hmm. you start with, like, the text and then you just have, mm-hmm. like, you see how far around. And then potentially, like, once you get to a point, somebody, like, you start back with the text. Mm-hmm. Or, I don't know if this would work, but, like, you, you take it down to whatever point that you take it down to and then you start building it back up to, like, a full page of something and just to see... Like, I don't know, like a weird game of telephone. Yeah. It would also be cool, like, to see an erasure of the same source text over time and how people change, like, how the erasure changes. So, like, I'm thinking, like, if you started with a political speech Ooh. and you did an erasure every day of a certain administration or something like that. Yeah. Um, see if it, if you found the same poem every time or if it changed, yeah. got more positive or negative or... There's so many things you could do. Yeah. I love projects. There was one of the, one of the proudest, uh, I guess like poetry thing that I've, that I've ever done, uh, was in, I think it was my second year of the MFA. Um, and we had an experimental forms class where we just talked about, like we, we read chunks of Unoya. We read, uh, I'm not Jackson Pollock, just a bunch of like a, the age of wire and string, which is a very, very, very strange book. Um, but for our final project, it was like just of the things that we've kind of looked at, do something. Um, and at the time, I had picked up like an astronomy textbook just because I was interested. Like it was just, I, it was like a bargain. You know, it's like fifty percent mm-hmm. off. I was like, meh, I could I could use this. Um, so I went through and started doing erasures with those, and I wound up with some of the with some erasures, and I was like, I. I, I always feel like I am victim to not pushing my work like far enough. So like, okay, I'm not just going to do erasures. I'm going to try to come up with something else. And the the idea that I had was to do was to create a new like set of twelve zodiac, um, mm. like so to so essentially to create the constellations that these zodiacs would be based off. Of. Um, so that then began to inform my work. So I like would go through and more or less try to like map out some like would create an erasure and then kind of see what it looked like and then turn it like I went into InDesign and actually drew like the lines and stuff to make it look like a constellation and then the next step back was like okay well what does this look like and what's something that sort of works with this idea of what mm-hmm. this thing is and then I created like I had a I have a pdf of like 12 new like new constellations um that's awesome. That I really my idea for that is to at some point like let all of the writer, my writer friends that I know of pick a constellation and write like the myth to it and then mm. compile that as the sort of like the collected myths around these like 
astral or I guess cosmic figures. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the the one of the most creative I think I've ever been with poetry was at 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 its start was a, a erasure. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that too because um, this is like kind of an ongoing thing between Tyler and I, but a lot of people like and I often even find myself saying things like real poetry in <laughs> in comparing it to erasure poetry. Mm-hmm. So like I have become more aware of that kind of like language and like just the perception. Like when I teach teach workshops on erasure, um, a lot of people feel like it's it's not as real mm-hmm. of a form and like then are like they try to push it further not saying that you were doing that with your project but like they think they need to add something else to make it more real mm-hmm. um, and I think that's just an interesting thing to observe yeah. that like you know we kind of have this inclination to like even I myself say like well is it is it a regular poem is it a real poem is it a richer <laughs> poem and like then I'm like wait what are you doing yeah. you have a book of them they're real yeah well I think that it's also um, I don't know. I think for me, it was, it was more that like, like I had the source material and I was doing erasures and I got to the point where I was like, well, what, like, what am I, what's the point with this? Like, what am I trying to do? Yeah. And if I'm just doing erasures of like, I could, I could very easily have written just poems based upon the things that I read in this astronomy textbook. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, well, if I have the astronomy textbook and I want to use erasure, what is it? that I could only do with erasure and astronomy. And I was like, oh, constellations. Yeah. So that's kind of the avenue that I, I wound into it. But mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I agree that when you have something that seems as quote unquote, like simple or as easy as just, you know, like removing or redacting chunks of a given text to create right. something else. Um, I definitely agree that there is a tendency to, to want to try to adorn, I try to adorn it with something so that mm-hmm. it, it makes it, it adds like the legitimacy to yeah. it instead of just allowing it to be like, like this is, this is what it is. Yeah. And I often feel like it, it, it does change. Like, you know, for example, if I'm teaching a workshop, like that might be the perception at the beginning, but I do think that once you see how hard it actually is to do to create oh, a yeah. cohesive, not too wordy thing that transcends its original source Mm -hmm. is like it's it is it is it takes a fair bit of time it's not you know you can do just fun ones and like you know bang them out but there's not like i think that until you try it it's like people kind of have a different perception of how it's gonna go yes oh yeah um when you like what is the process for you when you do erasures like do you do you have the given text and then start like finding words or phrases that you like and then try to connect them or do you just like look at it and just allow or like i get like more or less like a like one of the magic eye things you just look at it and eventually an image or something (laughs) something pops up yeah um well i can tell you about the process for my uh shia labeouf ones i for those, for the poems that make up the book, I printed everything out. Mm-hmm. So I like would find the interview, take out all the interviewers' words and extra stuff, and then put everything into a just a word document, um, print it out, and then I did all the erasures by hand. So I would go mm. through and circle words. Okay. And um, some erasurists 
they read through their source text first, and I don't do that. Okay. So I don't read through the entire interview and then go back. I just kind of, like, start from the beginning and let my eyes, like, scan the page down. Okay. Um, and my erasures are all in the order that the words appear in the interview, mm-hmm. so that doesn't always have to be the case. Right. You can, you know, go backwards and forwards and up and down if you want to, because there's no rules. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that kind of, like, once I... St- after I did a couple of them, I realized some things, like, I have to pick, like, what the voice is. Like, mm-hmm. am I going to use, like, all he's in this ones or I's or you's? Because, mm-hmm. um, like, that can change so much throughout an interview. Um, and, yeah, I just kind of see what pops out. Yeah, I kind of just, it's it's more like the magic eye sort okay. of process for me. That's, the times that I've done it, that's been more or less my experience. When I, when I was... Um... Up in Vermont for a residency last year, um, I, after like, maybe like a week, I was like, okay, I got to make a book. I just, I can't, can't be up here and not do that. So the, the local college was like, their library was having a sale. Um, So I drove up a couple of the other residents to just like, you know, pick through the stacks that, because it was like at the end of the week. So there was like, they had two small little mobile bookshelves of them. Mm. And I found, um, Oh crap. What's the name of this? What's the name of the book? It was like modern science in the mind or the modern mind and science, but it was just like big, like thick. I think that the last copyright for it was in maybe like the sixties. So something that, you know, or maybe even earlier that. So like lots of ideas that were, like kind of correct but mm. now probably woefully out of date um and like i took the book apart and then found most you it was mostly like the beginnings of chapters and the ends of chapters because i like there was a certain size that i was working with mm-hmm. and then just i had i collected a bunch of those and then just started you know just like no no idea what this book really was about no yeah. idea where the the pages that from the chapters came from and just started like picking out things and like crossing through stuff mm-hmm. um and it turned into once i arranged it in the right way it turned into like this weird like apocalyptic story of like the rise like man and then the rise of man into technology and then then man destroying itself and going back into like the natural world yeah. but the sort of like like cycle it, it's you know they're now now at a place at the end that they were at the beginning and then they'll probably just rise up Co- again yeah. and then destroy themselves and sink back down and come back yeah, it's like you can't really have. I don't think you can really have a goal when you first start out making an erasure because no. you really don't know what you're gonna encounter um, or where the text is gonna lead you. And it also depends so much on the person. Like, oh, yeah. maybe you only wrote that because you're out in the middle of Vermont. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yep. maybe you wouldn't have written that if you were in Baltimore in a city. Right. I think it depends so much on like the writers, like mood that day and like just their the circumstances of where they're coming from yeah um yeah i mean i i definitely in the poetry that i i was writing outside of this one big long thing like the because it took me the better part of like a week and a half to because i made like i made the book of it too mm-hmm. um which i can show you after the after yeah. we get done recording definitely um but like the the other poetry i guess the quote-unquote real poetry that i was writing um was definitely Vermont centric. Like I, mm-hmm. I would not have written any of those poems had I not been where I was. Like, not just 
um, physically, but also like emotionally and in time wise mm-hmm. that like I, I was, yeah. Cause I've, I've not written really anything like that since I've been back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's weird how much of that, like just the, re- your, your environment influences kind of like yeah the, the creative process in both like really, really big and kind of minute, subtle ways. Mm-hmm. So did you, I'm assuming that you, okay, I mean, I'm not going to assume. Did you write all of, all of the uh, LaBeouf poems in like the same place or did they develop over like many different places? And you said that you, you started working on them in 2014, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, they were, they were not all in the same place. Um, so I wrote a bunch when we lived in Lancaster and then I had a residency at a art gallery in Pennsylvania. Ooh. Yeah, that was my, it was my first one, um, a week long residency. So I wrote a bunch there and then I, we ended up moving to Minnesota. So I was still writing them when we went out there and I got an, another residency at, um, Spruceton Inn, which is in the Catskills. So that was another week-long residency, and I worked only on the manuscript when I was there. And then um, what happened was when I was submitting it, I was just submitting it as a chapbook. It was like a 25-page chapbook. And then um, Mason Jar, when they picked it up, asked me to extend it. So then this past fall, I wrote like just a crap ton more (laughs) poems. And I was like almost revisiting it in a way because I hadn't really worked on it since I was sending it out. Mm -hmm. Um, So then there was like this influx of new poems that happened before he published. So have you in, in the, over the span of working on them and especially in like the last push last fall, Mm -hmm. did you, did you, could you tell the poems that were written like in Lancaster and the ones that were written in like Minnesota or did they all sort of like at a point they all sort of like the voice congealed and the sort of tone and all that sort of like gave you that I guess like a through line developed I would say that I mean just I'd be curious to know if someone else could pick out the okay. new ones but mm-hmm. um to me I know the new ones because I feel like I was trying to do more with them because okay. like at that point I already written many Shia LaBeouf erasure <laughs> poems, and I'm like, okay, like, what can I do to, like, right. keep this going? Like, I gotta try some new weird things, like, different formats of how they look on the page. Um, so, to me, it's, I can tell which, to some extent, mm-hmm. but I'd be, yeah, I would be curious to know if a reader could be like, I think these are the new ones. Hmm. So if you want to try that. <laughs> yeah. When, how, how difficult was it to get the order of the manuscript oh my god this is not the first time i've answered this question and i have promised myself to be honest about it so uh i did not order the book i let my editors do it okay because i didn't really i didn't really have a vision for it and then the one thing i did try was ordering it chronologically by the interview date Mm. because i thought like how meta would that be? Like, that would be just great. Like, we could see Shia LaBeouf's growth as a person over mm-hmm. these, like, whatever years. But um, I did that. I ordered them in that way, and it just was, like, awful. <laughs> like, it was like, I didn't know it was good, but I knew it was awful, and the chronological was awful. So mm-hmm. um, at that point, uh, Michael Michael B. Tager just, like, helped me so much and, like, basically ordered it, which I think it was really, really good because... I love the order of the book, 
And I love like the first poem that they chose and the last poem and all of that. And I think it was helpful to have someone kind of outside of the project. Yeah, I was that the times that I've I've well, the two the two chapbooks that I've I've have gotten published. um, One of them was for at one of the residencies. I was in Nebraska for two weeks and I wrote a poem a day, um, and that was the that was the collection. And it is essentially in order. Like yeah. it was the that is the easiest book of poetry that I've ever had to put together because I sent it to the 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 friend of mine that was publishing them, and I was like, they're in the or- they're in the order that I wrote them, and she's like, I love it, let's do it. I was like, <laughs> let's go. Oh, cool. Um, but the other the first one that I did, which was my thesis, was like putting that thing together was I think the most difficult thing that I did. In, like in any of the process with that book, regardless of like writing, editing, yeah. designing it, was figuring out the fucking order. Because mm-hmm. like I, I read all of these articles. I re- I like asked people how they did it, and I still couldn't do it. <laughs> I don't. I think that. I think that each. I mean, this this feels obvious saying it, but like each each book. Or each thing that each thing that you're working on has its own like inherent rule system, mm-hmm. and I think like I've I've discovered this after like laying out a lots lots of books that like each each thing each project or each book or whatever has its own set of rules that might there might be some overlap with previous books but it really is a matter of like what okay what's the what are the governing things with this book and what are like. I know that I have to stay within these lines, but there are certain things that I can kind of fudge and I can kind of push a little right. bit. But I, I don't know. I won't know those things until I figure out. It's like, okay, these this is the rule that this is going to follow. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with ordering, there's a lot of that too, that each thing has its own sort of like within the like infinite possibilities of how it could be ordered. There's, you know, I would like to think maybe not infinite ways that it, that it could be ordered and it would like work how As you well, want. Yeah. yeah. That like of the infinite things, there's probably a couple hundred of like, yeah. this is the way that it needs to, you know, like if, if poem nine and poem 10 are switched, yeah, it probably wouldn't affect like the overall arc of it. But, um, I mean, honestly, I don't even know if I believe that the, that the order matters that much. I mean, <laughs> I mean, thinking about it right now, I'm just like, I mean, I dip into, in and out of poetry books, frequently Mm -hmm. like and even if I do read them front to back it's not often in one sitting so Mm -hmm. like I don't even know I think it's probably a thing that poets obsess about but like no one else really cares yes I'm well I think that like I think it's similar to weirdly enough cabinetry that like when if you do it and you do it well no one will notice mm. but if there's something wrong you will 100% pick up that you know this right is away. yeah because yeah. like um I'm so when I when I the first time through a poetry collection I'll read it front to back mm. and then I will other like if I return to it I will like henpeck through it because there usually will be like oh these are the poems that like I, I want to like try to absorb as mm-hmm. much as I can out of but I've gotten into the habit of um, either the first or like the second time that I read it, I read it backwards. Mm. And reading it backwards, it's a lot easier for me to, to pick up like why things are ordered the way that they are. And I'm yeah. I'm still not really sure why that is. And it may just be because like I know where it ends and I can see like the trajectory, like I can backtrack the trajectory. Yeah. Um. But it's it's been it's been really interesting like reading 
collections of poetry backwards just to get that sense of like I don't know. It's just it make like it it totally changes the landscape. And mm-hmm. it, like and I know that like I'm reading it backwards and I have to like do this weird flipping of like the emotion that's happening that it's yes. like I'm I'm experiencing it in reverse kind of um yeah, I'm going to have to try that. I it, I like a lot of times if I'm if I'm reading through a collection frontwards like front to back and I'm losing the thread or I'm getting distracted I'll then flip and read mm-hmm. backwards because it's easy at that point I know it's like okay there's there's something happening here that I'm I'm losing the thread but I know if I get it to it the opposite way it will make like I I can connect to right. it um yeah I I don't know I think I think that it's like it probably depends because like my first I don't know why I'm pointing over there my first collection um definitely has like an emotional arc to it mm-hmm. And that was what took me the longest time to figure out, like, what the... Because I have a lot of poems in the front of the collection that are, like, there's lots of rooms and windows and mm. the moon shows up on a lot of them. And I was like, oh, I don't want to, like... I don't want to have, like, six moon poems back to back. Yeah. Um, but I also know that, like, I, I began, when I was looking at them, I began realizing that all of those poems are, like, really isolated and really closed off and, like, sad like depressed sad mm-hmm. and then there's like two or three poems that are like turning points like in the middle where the, like things are shifting and then mm-hmm. the rest of the poems are like still kind of as sad but there's a contentment to it or like just an acceptance that happens so they go from like being really really tight and kind of claustrophobic to, to opening up mm-hmm. um and once i because i knew i knew what the first i wound up knowing what the first and the last two poems needed to be and then it was a matter of like okay well if i'm starting here and i'm ending here like where do the rest is like sudoku like where do the rest of these things need to yeah. and there's one poem that i actually um i flipped the in the intro and the ending so like the i think the first two stanzas and the last two stanzas i flipped mm. because the way that it was it it went from being open to kind of closed off but where it needed to be in the collection it needed to open up yep and i was like Oh, all right. And it was like, well, this is a much better, better poem. poem. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, well, and this works where it needs to. Like, it had like there's no other place that it could have gone except yeah. r- right like towards the middle of the manuscript, and that's when it started. Things started opening up, and I was like, well, it's like I gotta do, I gotta do what I need to do. That's awesome. Hmm. So, what was it? A sense of like relief or a sense of freedom when you gave the ordering off? To someone else or was it like a source of anxiety for you that you now had given this thing to someone else and they're in charge of like the like like essentially like how it's going to look when it's presented to other people well i think it actually the way that i if i'm remembering correctly the <laughs> way that it worked was like i was like i don't have any idea about the order and they were like well how about this order and then i was like let me try the chronological. And then I was like, oh shit, no, no, your way. <laughs> like it was that thing where you could tell, like, this is definitely bad. Let's just like, so, so, what you had. so they gave you an order, like their interpretation of what the order should be. You tried your own one and then decided to go with what they said. Yes. And this okay. actually has been a theme with me working with Mason Jar Press, like God bless them. <laughs> uh, everything they do I'm like, well, what if we did this? And then we, and then they let me try it, which is the most amazing part to me. And then I'm like, nope, you were right. Undo it. <laughs> Undo. <laughs> so that, like, I guess, like, 
that's been one of the really fun parts of working with like a small press mm-hmm. is like I've gotten so much uh, like participation in the process and like they've let me you know try weird stuff and been really open to like all my feedback so I don't think I would have had that with a different set, like publisher so I'm really thankful. Yeah I, well I don't know I feel like well I mean depending upon where you like if you were sending it to other like smallish presses I, I feel like mm-hmm. I feel like there there are more often within like the poetry publishing world presses that would be willing to to do that. I mean, not to discount or discredit Mike and Ian because they like I having been in school with them for a while and friends with them like they they go really above and beyond with with their press. Um, but I don't know. I I guess it was just like my perception that like. Once you signed a book contract, like, you didn't get to decide what was oh, on the cover. Like, yeah. you know, I guess that was just, like, a stereotype that I had for some reason. Of, I, like, I think when you when you deal with the, like, the big, oh, like, I don't know how many. The what, top five. Yeah. Or is it is it five now that Random House and Penguin have merged? Or is it, uh, whatever. Yes. When you get to, like, the bigger publishing houses, it's my understanding that it's more or less, like, Depending upon your contract, you might have like quote unquote final say, but like you you're not as involved in the process right. of like because um, I know that like I'm actually in the I'm just I've just wrapped on one book and I'm in the process of doing another book layout that like I I work really really closely with my with my writers that yeah. like I'll come up with a couple versions of the cover or send it to them be like which ones do you like do you mm-hmm. have any ideas or if they like. Most of the time, there's no idea of what the cover should be, so it's up to me to kind of, like, suss out whatever it is that... Because way deep down, somewhere in them, they know what it needs to look like. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt in my mind that they have an idea. It's just they haven't, like, unearthed it enough. But it's, yeah. it's like, it's, it's like when you see it, it's either, like, what, like yes, this is what it should be, or, like, no, that's, yep. that is not it mm-hmm. at all. Um, but, so, I did... I'm... I have a feeling that, like... There were probably a f- not not a whole lot of choices for what the cover should be, um, based upon that it was Shia LaBeouf and there's a couple of like very iconic images mm-hmm. of him. But was it like was it relatively easy to to hone in on like the the bag? Um, well, at first we were like kind of trying to work with the erasure concept, so like oh. maybe a crossed out title. Okay. But it just, like, I wasn't really feeling it, so we went a different route, and, like, that's when I sent um, Mason Jar, like, a bunch of covers that I loved of other books. Mm -hmm. And I actually think it was Tyler who thought of the paper bag (laughs) idea, and, you know, there's, like, extra meaning in in it because it's, like, you know, it's his paper bag, but when he wore it, it was, like, over his head, but on the book cover, it's, like, open, and it's, like, you know, there's some... There's some meaning there. Um, so, yeah, I can't really take credit for any of it. I mean, <laughs> and then, you know, at some point, like, I had been sending the manuscript out with I Am Not Famous Anymore as the title, but, like, I always in the back of my mind was just, like, that. there's no poem that has that in it. It's, like, it doesn't have to be the title. And then, um, so then that was another conversation with Mason Jar Press. They were, like, well, we love the title. And I was, like, well, let's try this. And then, and then I was, like, as soon as I saw it, I was, like, no. That's definitely got to be the title. Like, duh. Like, what are you doing? Just listen to them. They're the experts. I just like to push the boundaries, I guess, of, like, what what, what if it was this? Yeah, well, I think that that's, like, 
if if my if the MFA that I went to taught me anything, it's that it's like there's no there's no harm and oftentimes a whole lot to be gained of just like just trying shit out. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Because I feel like, I mean, it's it's good to have experience on the positive that like you've done. You know, it's like there there are people out doing something that have have laid the groundwork. That's like okay, I can follow. Maybe not necessarily exactly these steps. But, you know, it's like I'm, there's positive reinforcement on that side. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's also can be really beneficial to get the sort of, like, acknowledgement and the negative. That, like, when you try something, like, oh, no, that doesn't, no, that's not that's not going to work. Because yeah. it, it can, it can, because I feel like the, all, the point of all of that is to get you into a, a place of, like, clarity or the uncovering or like given a vocabulary or given language to to figure out something or an image of whatever it is that you're working with and Mm -hmm. having it on both sides can help you sort of like focus in on where it needs to be if you're like if i'm going this way and that's not working and i'm going this way and this is kind of working then i can i'll probably edge more towards Mm -hmm. the way it is kind of working but still like you know deviating a little bit just to just to see but, hmm. I mean, I love the cover, though. I love the way it came out. I love the color. and I, I, re- I do, too. That's a really, really cool, like, color for our cover of a book. I think so, too. We used to have our um, bookshelves arranged by color. Like, I have a friend that does that. Rainbow. Yeah. Yeah, all my librarian friends are like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Having a book connection. Um, but, yeah, it was interesting because we would always look at it and be like, why are there so few yellow books or whatever? Mm-hmm. I don't think there were a lot, very many yellow books yeah. or green. I don't know. There was definitely, like, bigger chunks. Like, there's a lot of white books. Yes. Um, Lots of, like, I imagine dark, dark darker red. colors, too. Yeah. yeah. I have mine arranged in, like, theme and then, tall, like, tallest, biggest book to smallest book. <laughs> That's Okay. I don't know what we're going to do next, because that color thing, although it looks beautiful, it's very hard to find something. Yeah, unless you know, I mean, yeah, if you have, like, 15 white books, like, I don't know which one. Yeah, (laughs) or, like, I'll, you know, for a long time, I was, like, confident that if you asked me about any book that we owned, I could tell you what cover it was, (laughs) and then, like, that slowly (laughs) faded, and I was like, okay, you're getting old, like, you don't know that shit. Um, have there been, so this is... I know that I said that I I will only ask specifically one or two questions from the things that I sent you, but I'm this is something that I'm I've become more and more interested in as I've done this podcast. Like, have there been in in the relatively recent time that you've been writing poetry? Have have you noticed any like major shifts in it, um, or have you encountered any um, like any other poets or any other writers that have like drastically change the trajectory of of what you've been what you've been doing well I would say that like when I first started writing poetry uh I was just discovering the outlet scene and since then that has uh been revealed as a very problematic uh poetry scene writing scene um and no longer even really exists I don't think um so that is one shift I think but it really did influence a lot of my beginning experience as a writer because it was very like confessional and personal and like modern you Mm -hmm. know like poems where cell phones are mentioned Mm -hmm. which was like you know before I was like oh we learned about poems in school and they rhyme and (laughs) um so that was kind of I think that influenced me but is no 
but no longer, I mean, so that's, I mean, that's one shift for me that I remember experiencing over the years. But I think just like reading more poetry is, is something that's always changing me. I mean, I'm just discovering like more and more people who are doing, like, I'm really drawn to like the weird, weirder projects. (laughs) Um, I mean, I like all sorts of poems. Like I'm struggling not to say regular poems right now, but like whatever, like, you know, like I do like all sorts of poetry, but I really like, like when I read, um, Mairead Burns book that, uh, Adam Robinson put out with, uh, Mm. Publishing Genius, um, that book was just like, just blew me away and like showed me that you could make poems that looked all sorts of ways. You know, I love like list poems and like Mm -hmm. concepts. I feel like Wave is always really a good source of finding mm-hmm. stuff that's like like presented in kind of a more or less um, traditional format, but are by no means traditional poems yeah. at all. Well, I know like I have a bunch of um, C.A. Conrad books and those are like amazing. Like when I started learning about like somatic writing and stuff like that, it, that really was like, that was a really cool shift. If you, if you have a like pantheon of poets, who would be up at the top, like the like big three or big five, or more or less? I don't know. You might have just one one like Polaris poet right up at the top. Hmm. <laughs> That's cool. I don't know. I can't be put on the spot <laughs> for that. Why would you like I? For me, there are like if you if you look at my bookshelves, I they it's like graphic novels and stuff at the top, and then um, what's the next one? There's something the next shelf, and then the shelf after underneath that is like the, my sort of like the poets that I've read the most of or that I gra- I tend to gravitate towards, um, and then the next shelf is like Chinese writing. Or, like, things that are in translation, and then next is, like, haiku and uh, English haiku and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, because um, there are definitely, like, I have, like, a big three with, like, one or two auxiliary. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for me, it's, like, Mary Oliver, Charles Wright, Jane Hirschfield are, like, the big, like, if I, if I could grow up to be a poet, like, a weird, like, amalgamation of all of them, that would yeah. be the dream. Um, and then Lee Young Lee and Bay Dow are kind of, sort mm-hmm. of, like auxiliary because they they do a lot but i i don't when i when i encountered their stuff i devoured it but i tend to it's i don't co i don't go back to them as often as i do mm-hmm. the other ones but yeah i really i like you lee young lee too the i think like i guess what is coming immediately into my mind for this question is like i've been reading a lot of fiction because so okay. tyler's been in the mfa for fiction so like i get access to all his books that he's reading <laughs> Um, and just over in the past three years have read so much fiction that I love. Like, um, I never knew about Lydia Davis. I don't know if I know about Lydia Davis. like amazing and very weird. Um, we, I've read a lot of Louise Erdrich. She's a, um, native writer who's based in Minnesota. What was her last name? Erdrich. See if I can find that on Google. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, just you know writers like that just come to mind because that's what i've been reading a lot of lately but there's been a lot more erasure projects lately too um Hmm. 
there's uh, Isabella O'Hare's collection of erasures of um, celebrity apologies. Yes, yes. Amazing. I was, I was going to um, mention that. Um, whatever. Um, earlier, in the, <clears throat> earlier in the in the the recording, just as it like thinking about like what like the when we were talking about like are erasures enough or is there like do something else does something else need to happen mm -hmm. with them and I, I feel like with her erasures like that's like you're the the point of them is to sort of like draw out this like really like sexist sort of insidious language mm -hmm. or like mindset that exists in these in these apologies or yeah. like quote-unquote apologies yeah. um and I feel like tying that into like your poems, like the whole the whole idea of like plagiarism or the whole idea of, you know, like using someone else's language and either claiming it as your own or presenting it as your own or just, mm -hmm. you know, like how that change, how that can change. And I feel like that um, is just like a, a backing bit of information for me. It's like that. It's like the fact that your poems are not maybe not like rooted in that, but like that's mm -hmm. something that informs them. Mm -hmm. I think is like to me like you you're hitting like having erasures or having his words turned into erasures in that way. I think like mm -hmm. that accomplishes that goal of like or to me that that in my mind makes the erasures like this is like this is enough. This is yeah. this is what these things need to be because yeah. it's like you can't you can't do anything else with, with it after that. It's like you're, you've reached the sort of logical conclusion of this mm -hmm. format and this language and, you know, that's out there. Yeah, that's a really amazing book. It just, it's so powerful too when you hold a book like that um, because Isabel's erasures are more blacked out, so mm -hmm. the lines are there. And just when you, it's like when you see the heft of the book and you realize all of these celebrities who have taken advantage of women um and you know quote unquote apologize for it it's just like it's it all adds up to the experience of reading the book and then understanding like this moment in time yeah so that's a really great project so i'm are you i'm assuming based upon what you just said that your erasures are just like just the words that you just the erasure exists as the text not the actual like full text of yeah, so mine are all retyped. Okay. And um, so I add line breaks and I add punctuation. Hmm. So the words are, the words are the same and in the order they appeared in the interview, and then everything else is, in the titles also. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, and it's like, you can do it any way. Yeah. I mean, I know um, Chase Bergeron's book, uh, Red, is a erasure of Dracula. It's also Ooh. really really good and what they did was they left space on the page so that's retyped but instead of the poem appearing just in a column like some do but like others there's words scattered across the page mm -hmm. so there's wow. so many different ways you can do it that's i mean so cool it's like you know you think of it as a simple form but there's really like it's so malleable you can really make it into whatever yeah um do you know amanda mccormick no she, do you know Tracy Diamond? Yes. Tracy oh, and Amanda work okay. with Ink Press Productions. Um, and I want to say that this is an Ink Press book. Um, and I'm, I'm, I don't remember the name of it, but um, I will find it and I'll put it in the description. But Amanda McCormick did a erasure of uh, Gwen and the Green Knight. 
uh, in like a weird sort of re- like retelling like body centric poem, mm-hmm. which I have not gotten a chance to read yet, but I've heard amazing, tremendous things about. Nice. But that like just you have this, you know, because the the times that I've done it, it's been mostly. Um, I don't know, like taking chunks of a text and divorcing it from whatever it was and then presenting it in like a new, like with the mm-hmm. the one that I did in Vermont. Whereas I feel like with hers, I think that it was like she took like the totality of the text and then created a coherent story mm-hmm. based or a coherent like long form poem based upon the complete like text of it, which is like, I don't like, how, how do you even start with I, a project like that? Yeah, I know. I don't know. I don't know. There's, um, in thinking about found poems, I was actually um, revisiting some of these yesterday. Um, I have a series of poems that is nowhere near done um, that I, I the, the words that uh, comprise the body of the poem are only, um, can only be formed from letters that exist in the title. Hmm. But so like there can be duplicates. It's not. It's like the poem itself is not just like an anagram. But Mm -hmm. you know, it's like if there's like if the word the is in it, plus I don't know like deer, you can make red Mm -hmm. or like whatever whatever combination. Um, And I actually, for one of them, I don't know. This was a weird like written in a fugue state. I did. I went to go see um, a uh, production of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And then took a line that appears very close to the end of the of the collection and sort of like retold the story of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern just with words that could be created from the the title, which was like I, like I did it and I I don't know how long it took me to write it but I I keep coming back to him like yeah. I I cannot believe that I like I couldn't do I don't think I could do this. <laughs> what was now. I thinking? Yeah. Yeah, no, I know what you mean, and that that makes me think of, like, I I think more than being drawn to found poetry, I am very drawn to, like, constraints of any type, or, like, experiments, or, like, you know, weird shit. Um, Like, yeah, any sort of constraint. Like, I I like the idea of, like, writing a poem a day for 30 days, or, like, yeah, creating words only from the title. Like, that, I'm really drawn to that, and I think it's part, like, partially a motivation thing when I have set mm. up something like that I have more of an investment in the project whereas if I'm just like day-to-day writing like figuring out my writing practice <laughs> it's not as exciting <laughs> like when there's like some sort of like I don't know an experiment of some sort yeah like define de- de- defined limits and boundaries and yeah rules have you in that case have you read Unoya by Christopher Bach oh mm-hmm. so it's <laughs> It each it's broken up into five I guess five different sections and with a couple of like auxiliary sections or at the end. Um and each section is written with words that only contain like the vowel that it's the section is. So mm-hmm. in the section A it's only written with words that have A as a vowel. Um for E it's just E's, for um for you know, for I it's just I's. And each like it gets into some weird grammatical, like, linguistic stuff, but each section has, I don't know if you plan this or it just sort of happened, each section has, like, a feast, has, like, a, like, a, I think a naval battle, so, but it's, like, 
it's just, it's a crazy, like, and I don't, that's when I was, like, looking, I'm like, I don't, like, wh- how? Or, like, there's a, I think there's a French writer who wrote an entire novel without using the letter E. And I'm wow. like, I don't, like, what? It's probably, like, nothing else was inspiring them at that moment. <laughs> they were like, let me see if I can do this. And Fuck then they e. did it. Yeah, like, it was probably, like, a surprise when they, they actually pulled it off. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what was the... What was the first Shia LaBeouf poem that you wrote? Um, or I guess like what 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 caused what was the what kicked off that first one? Yeah, so there was um, this publisher uh, called Sil- Silver Birch Press, and they are no longer. I think they're defunct now, but oh. um, they did a celebrity poetry call that was like it was like very basic. It was oh. like a call for celebrity poems. Like, they would do a lot of themed poems and then publish them on their blog. Mm-hmm. And so that is when I wrote the first uh, two Shia LaBeouf poems. Oh, and nice. Then, yeah, and those two are both in the book, so the first two are in there. But, yeah, it was just kind of like, let's see if we can do this. <laughs> Look, everything combined, you know. Um, have you given very many readings before? Oh, we were just talking about this this morning. Um, I have read a lot at open mics and uh, done a lot of workshops. Okay. But I have not really been, like, a feature very many times. Okay. So that's why I have, like, a little bit of anxiety about tonight. But, like, I'm cool. It's good. It's going to be great. Um, but I'm assuming that you you have been to yes, a lot of readings. Yes. We've, I've been to many, many readings and also dissected many readings um because Tyler and I put on our own events and we are always trying to figure out the perfect okay perfect poetry reading which I don't believe exists but also just like any literary event we're always like observing and trying to figure out like hey, what what did they do really well what could we do better if we do something like this so with with that in mind mm-hmm. and I guess this might be more like event like the the actual reading event centric but like what would be what is your ideal way for a reader or or an audience, just whoever, to experience your writing? Like, would you want it to be in a, in a reading setting? Would you want it to be, like, you just hand someone a book and they go off and, and like, read it by themselves? Or, um, or it's something in between there? I mean, I, I really love the workshop format because I, like, mm. I, like introducing people who don't know about this form Mm -hmm. and like seeing watching them do it and realize that they can do it's an accessible form to every for everyone Mm -hmm. um but i but but after now saying that like i wouldn't i wouldn't use my own book really as an example other than like oh i i did write this book so i have some credibility in this area yeah yeah. some Um, level of expertise i guess like I don't know. I mean, there is something to be gained from hearing it read because I think it's like pretty funny to uh, <laughs> see just that this exists mm-hmm. at all. And like just to kind of be in a room with everyone who came there to hear Shia LaBeouf poems like that kind of adds another element of like, we all know this is batshit crazy, right? <laughs> like everyone in the room agrees. And how is this even like happening? Yes. Um, so that's, I think, a cool thing. Uh, yeah. Okay. What What are your thoughts on readings, just sort of like in general? They're always too long. <laughs> okay. Is there have you have you and Tyler determined like a like 
they tend to be like 15 minutes long or is each one its own degree of like, oh, this should have ended like, like five minutes ago? Um, both. <laughs> I mean, not, not, I hope people just don't think we're like going to events and judging them, but we kind of are. Um, like we do have it's some research. like, it's, you're doing it's research. research, you're it's conducting research. research. Yes. So our goal, I mean, our goal with events is to make events more palatable for non-writers so we are interested okay. in bringing people who don't consider themselves to be writers to more writing events okay so that is kind of the area that we're we're trying to figure out like how can we balance mm -hmm. that those audiences needs um so we have like some hard and fast rules that we always stick with like we don't really believe in the break hmm. like sometimes readings will have a break but we've yep you know I mean, we go back and forth on it, but, like, we think that a lot of times that takes momentum out of an event. I was, I was just about to ask if it was a question, if it was an issue of momentum or mm -hmm. not. So there's, like, stuff like that, but um, we're always looking for, like, we love, like, weird, unique events. Um, we're always looking for ideas on stuff to do. You should definitely talk to Tracy and Amanda about that. Yeah. For, from Ink Press? Mm-hmm. Because I... Tracy is the... Um, the current poet that's up. I actually, that box of books is her book. Nice. Um, but we, this, this morning we had a, like a, a meeting to talk about the launch, her launch, which is happening next month. Mm -hmm. um, and just talking about like events and how to plan them and stuff. And the fact that like Ink, Ink Press is, is very, very concerned or not concerned, but like very interested in um, about, like the ex the exploration of the like the event or the launch or the reading and have it to be something that is unique and kind of one of a kind and fit whatever it is that's happening but also is not the traditional like people go up and read right and then somebody else comes up and read and mm -hmm. then the feature comes up mm -hmm. and read so for for her launch it will be um more of a discussion with a bunch of other like women poets cool. or women female body poets um because I'm not, I'm not sure if they all identify as, as women. But, um, and then at the end, they'll each read, like, a poem mm -hmm. um, to kind of close things out. So it's, like, it is a launch for her book, which is a long poem. But the, the vast majority of the event will be, like, poets in discussion yeah. about, like, topics that kind of all pop up, that all populate their, their various work. Which, mm -hmm. I, to me, is, like, I love that. that yeah, you like, know, that sounds more appealing to me than just, like, hours of poetry yeah because like what if you don't like one of the people who's reading like that's that's the worst case scenario is like you're stuck there yeah and there's often not like a way to get out yes <laughs> you're just in a chair which is why you always sit towards the back i know i know and if we just made don't the events better any... people wouldn't feel like they had to do that right yeah <laughs> stay in the back don't wear any jangly or like swishy clothing so you can just you can just ghost if you need mm -hmm. to I, I like i I'm not a big, big fan of readings, but it's primarily because it's, I don't feel like most of the poetry that I write is meant to be presented in like a public way. It, mm -hmm. I feel like I would much rather just give someone my poems and let them just like go off somewhere and read it mm -hmm. and then not have to be around while they read it so they can just come back to me and like, that was cool. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, so I really, I've been thinking about, and I have not come to a, a good conclusion on this of like a way to read to do to do a reading but not actually have to read my poetry mm. um because i've i've heard of and i have been to some where like 
the the poetry that is being presented is by a particular poet, but they they tap other people to read the poems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I would really love to just like have just like I don't know like a little pamphlet of the five or seven poems that I was going to read and just give it to everybody yeah. and then play like do music or do something to kind of insulate people so they don't feel so weird that they're sitting with like 30 other people reading like five poems like you should just do that I want I will go to that that sounds fun like that was that's so weird like to just have everyone just reading your pamphlet while you're there but you're not reading it out loud like I like that yeah because I, I originally it was going to be I would just give people the pamphlet and then just like stand up there or like just distribute it and just go sit back down but one of my friends was like that would be kind of weird to just like be in a space with other people reading there needs to be some sort of like something um so I, I do, I play music and I've been playing for years and I recently got a loop pedal and a delay reverb pedal and I can make these really, really large, like ambient soundscapes. Yeah. Um, so I feel like I'm in very good, like to, to like if I, I cultivate whatever I would have read and then come up with like a short, I don't know, maybe like 10 or so minute thing that I can just play mm -hmm. and just have that up there, have people read, I play and then it, as it ends, I can just go sit back down and I think that's cool. It's like more of a performance piece. It's like, and we need more weird stuff. Like there's a place for like straight up poetry readings and they're, they're fun and people do them really well. But like there's people out there who want more than that. Yeah. I also feel like I don't, I don't read my own stuff super well. Um, and I would hate for someone for that to be their first and potentially only, only exposure to my writing. Cause I feel like it's, cause I don't like, I don't write to be, read aloud. I write for the page for someone else to read silently or aloud to themselves. Um, which I know that like other poets that I've, that I've talked to and have had on the podcast are very much like, no, I, I want to be like, it needs to be like not spoken word performed, but like yeah. it, it, it should exist in some sort of like sonic capacity. And mm -hmm. I'm like, hard pass. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's so much, like, I could do a whole freaking interview just about <laughs> events, but, like, I just feel like it would be remiss to not even mention this aspect of it, but, like, the majority of literary events that we go to are not accessible, and that is a huge issue in terms of the space that they're in or the, like, facilities that are there, mm -hmm. and, like, I think that we focus so much on, like, let's get these great poets or let's get these great readers that we don't think about like all of the aspects that make up an event. Mm -hmm. Like where's the parking? What is, what's the restroom situation? Are there, is there, are there stairs in the venue? Like mm -hmm. there's these small things that like before we like, you know, like let's consider some of those things before we, yeah, you know, think we have the best poetry reading ever. <laughs> Have you been to uh, any of the AWPs that have happened? Yes. How? I'm I'm just curious. Like, what? How is? What's your experience been like with AWP? Just as the sort of like the big conglomerate thing that it is. Because it feels. I mean, like, panels to me feel like, in a lot of ways, like the. If you if you're in a not good panel, it's like all the worst things about like a reading or just like a really uh, uh, emotionally inaccessible thing um, based upon my experiences. So I'm, I'm curious, like that's, that's what got me thinking about, mm -hmm. you know, just the sort of 
all of all of all of that. I think that AWP suffers from a lot of the same issues that any professional organization suffers from. I think that organizations, professional organizations in particular, are have not fully embraced technology yet mm. as one that's just one example mm-hmm. um but like they i think that such these big organizations that are member based are not really doing a good job of listening to their members and what they need i think they could definitely be doing more in terms of accessibility and also like accessibility across the board yeah like i mean physically and electronically mm-hmm. like i don't know why there isn't a um virtual conference Oh. There's virtual conferences that have been happening for years in other industries, mm-hmm. um, like libraries, for example. So there's, it's just like they, yeah, they, I think they, it's cool that we have an organization like that, but there's a lot more that could be mm-hmm. improved. Hmm. The, the last AWP that I went to, I was insanely fortunate enough to actually like exhibit in the space mm-hmm. i did not go to a single panel and it was the best awp experience that i've ever had in my life i was just hanging out with other book people slinging books and talking books about which i was like i don't because all the panels that i would i would go to most of them would devolve into like you obviously have done some sort of graduate research on this and you just want to like talk about it yeah i think it's hard because i'm not sure that um like if you're not in academia, oh, it's yeah. very it's very hard to well first of all even afford it. Yep. And then like you have people who are presenting because they have to. So like I don't blame them for having like, you know, to present about whatever their research is because they literally are required to do that for tenure or to keep their job or whatever. So then you end up in this situation where it's like very flat mm-hmm. at times. You know, I've been to good panels and I've been to panels that weren't so great, but um, one thing that happened last AWP was the um, whale prom. Did you hear about whale prom? Yes, and I was so mad that I was unable to go to AWP and I missed that. It was amazing. I mean, they're going to do it again next year in Portland, so we um, tabled at that for Fear No Lit, and it was just the most amazing part of the whole trip. I mean, I could have just done that. It was like all my people, like just, (laughs) you know, people who, you know, there's a certain look of people who are on the book fair floor and then there's a look of people who are at whale prom and I was just like so much more comfortable at whale prom um so I do think that yeah AWP should start considering like the the needs of their members and needs of members who are not associated with an institution because there are so many writers out there um who who are not affiliated that have needs yeah So this is going to be a complete shift in discussion, but um, in all of the in all aspects of the writing that you do, where do you feel like you are the youngest in all of that? If there is a place that you feel like or that you could pinpoint, like physically, I'm in the space and I'm like I'm the youngest person here. No, 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 just like uh, like in like in with with regards to your art, like what okay. is what is something that you're like, ooh, I should probably like I need to hone up on that. A, a good bit or uh, I don't know like everything <laughs> like I feel like that with everything I'm always like I need to read more I should be writing more I need to like be going to more events I need to be like exploring voices who I don't normally you know encounter in my day-to-day life like all of it I just I, it should be like that for every writer because like really there's so much I mean there's so much writing being put out into the world like you could never be done and know enough to feel like 
I'm a writer now. <laughs> I don't know. That's okay. Yeah, how I, I feel about it. That's like it. When when I thought of that question, um, and I feel, I don't know if I've if I've asked it to a lot of people, but it was really like. It started out as like, oh, you know, there's probably like one or two things. And then I started thinking and it started like growing and growing. And then I arrived at your point. I was like, yeah, pretty much like, like across the board. Yeah. Everything could use. It's like if, if you were like, what are you proficient at? I would be like, well, I have like a little bit of experience in these things, but I don't (laughs) feel like an expert. I can, I can, I can put a word on a page like a motherfucker. (laughs) Right. Um, okay. Well, I feel like. I feel like we're probably in the the home stretch, so I will ask the traditional last two questions that I ask on so poetry. The first one is, if you have the vocabulary for it, what is your internal landscape like? If you don't, it's cool. I'm just, I'm. This is the of the of the things that I ask people. This is the thing that I'm the absolute most curious about. I would say that if I was describing my internal landscape. It would be like a piece of Swiss cheese. Ooh, okay. Is it is it actually Swiss cheese or is it something something that is akin to Swiss cheese? It is literally a piece of cheese with holes. Okay. Like really raggedy. Okay. Is it Okay, so not not the big block of it, but like like a like a slice or a wedge? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Is it is it Swiss cheese that is like from a particular place or is it just sort of generic like when you what you think of when you think of just like a like a chunk of Swiss cheese? It's generic because I don't even like Swiss cheese. <laughs> like I would not eat it. I, w- I love cheese, but I would not eat it. It's like stinks. It's my least favorite kind of cheese. Okay, let's move on to the next question because like now I'm realizing what this might be saying about me as a person and like. I no, no, no. It. I, it's just like I mean, uh, one of one of my one of my guests, their insides were, or their internal landscape was um, multicolored, big like floofy, but sort of like creamy, just like amalgamation. And we arrived at like frosting that her insides mm-hmm. just like lots of lots of multicolored frosting. Um, no, but like, do you do you feel like that? For me personally, like my, I feel like my internal landscape is once I figured out that that's what it was and sort of that exploration, I've noticed that it manifests kind of like across my life in a bunch of different ways. And I'm, I'm interested that like, do you feel like whatever that represents for you, like, can you see its manifestations or its influences in like what you, like your life or your art or just sort of, yeah, definitely. I mean, like, I guess the, the thing that comes to mind first is just, like, I struggle with anxiety, and that's, like, what it feels like to me is, like, very, like, holy, there's holes, danger holes everywhere. So, like, something, okay, so do you, do you see it as, like, that they are voids or things that need to be filled, or that they are, like, avenues into places that, like, oh, this is, like, like, danger, like, Mm -hmm. is it, is it that... The, is it the hole itself that is dangerous or is it the thing that like is there something that exists through it or is it just like if you were to step on it you would just like vanish out through somewhere i would say it's like the cheese that remains is is the evidence that like okay you can still be a thing mm-hmm. but have holes in you mm. 
Okay. Okay. I, I like that. The, yeah. Okay. I am the cheese that remains, and the holes are like things that I've encountered in my life or like challenges or. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, like that to me is, is a. I don't know. It's like kind of like a, a like really encouraging perseverance sort of it's like like you you know because in, in that way i was imagining it more like um i don't know the first thing i thought of was like bullet holes it's like things that have things you encountered that have like passed through and have removed chunks or have mm -hmm. like made very obvious craters or indentations but yet the fact that it's like well it's it's still it's still what it is. It's, it's still cheese. Yeah, you still know it's cheese, and some people love it. Yeah, that, not yeah, me, that, but some people do. Right? Yeah, that like that, which kind of, I guess, is in a in a weird way. Um, so it, there's a uh, Japanese art aesthetic idea called uh, wabi sabi, which is um, do you know? About I've it? heard of this. Okay. Like I remember hearing this somewhere, like a movie or something, but I don't. Remember okay. What I it I is. will I will do my best to describe it because I it's been a little while since I've I've researched this, but the, it's a sort of like the concept is like is like really like a like kind of a steer loneliness or like there's a like kind of a bitter sweetness that happens, but it is often exhibited in. Um, so like really natural things that have been affected by time that you can see the effect of the time on it. So like BB King's guitar or like Tom Waits as a person, like that would be sort of like the embodiment of that. Like they've been through stuff and the things that they've been through have changed them and have altered them and have like have left marks and wears on it mm -hmm. or on them or whatever. Um, and for the Japanese, like that, visual of you know like something that has been like a i don't know like a teapot that has been used in in tea ceremonies for like you know like thousands or hundreds of years that has that has like been stained the color of the tea or has been like cracked and, and fixed that to them is more beautiful than something that is like a static sort of like the western idea of beauty that beauty that has been locked in a case and mm -hmm. is unchanged um because i in in Zen and in sort of like that idea that like things that are not affected by time or things that are separated from time are dead. So if you've been, if you have lived and there is evidence of that, that living on you, mm -hmm. like that means it's like you, like you're living and you're still doing it and you're still kicking. And that, like that idea to me resonates with the idea that, you know, like with the cheese is like, you've been affected by stuff and you've been, maybe not like damage, but there have been like consequences of your interactions with these things. Mm -hmm. But yet like you're still like you're still going and you know, like that it's not you know, there's not it's not a deficit. It it's yeah. you know, it's like it's been turned into either like encouragement or perseverance or just, you know, like out and out stubbornness of like, you know, fuck I'm not you know, fuck you. I'm yeah. I got holes, so what? You know? This is how I'm supposed to be. Yeah. This right. is the type of cheese I am. Right. Yeah. Not all cheese has holes, but this type does. I actually, I don't know why I did research on this, but I, like, I read, uh, like, a wiki article of, like, how the holes are actually formed. I think it's, like, it's, um, like, air that is produced that when it, like, as the cheese is congealing, it gets trapped. And then, like, I think, I don't know if the air just pops or if there's somebody that has to go through and, like, oh, they, wow. like, pop the bubble so that it can continue to, like, form. Form more. Yeah. Jesus, weird. Just popped into my head. Okay, so 
if not Swiss, what what's your favorite? What cheese ranks top for you? Um, in your pantheon of cheeses, which is which is the top? I like all kinds of goat cheese. Hmm. Okay. So just goat cheese. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Um, and the traditional last question on so poetry is, do you have a question for me? Can be totally open. Just. Why, why did you start this podcast? Um, I started the podcast as really an excuse to, uh, have engaging conversations with friends and people that I, so it started out really as just a, as an excuse to, to talk to friends that I hadn't really talked to in a while. Cause it was a little bit after, um, after the MFA and you know, it's like everyone's, since you're not in, not forced to be in a room a couple times a week for hours on end with these people, you know, like life kind of gets in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was recognizing that I was, uh, experiencing a sort of deficit of, you know, like long interesting conversations about art about poetry which would normally happen like after class everyone would go to a bar and just hang out for an hour or two and just you know like just talk about stuff um so i i wasn't getting a lot of that and i really really missed it and i figured that well i mean i could i could i could just start a podcast and just talk to people because yeah. there are like there are lots of people that i've i never really got to questions ask them specifically about poetry mm-hmm. or you know like the sort of i don't know just or just have a long kind of tangential conversation about like what they're writing or what they're doing or what their thoughts are yeah. on things like this um which like i said uh, before we started recording is why i have um more or less like orchestrated the the podcast to be the way that it is mm-hmm. that's like i don't i try not to do a whole lot of editing um and there's you know like questions that i send out but it's more just like to get people or to get guests kind of in in the mood or in the in the mindset of like talking about this stuff because um, i really want it to be as close as if someone were to just overhear two people talking about this as possible yeah um and the other aspect of it was that when I had conversations like like this with people that I knew in the program, um, I always came away with them, came away at the end of them feeling, um, I don't know, like encouraged or just like just full of insights or full of revelations. Um, and that translated to me as like, well, there's, there's, I'm getting, there's obviously some benefit that I'm getting out of these. And I'm hoping that whoever it is that I'm talking to is getting too. And like that might translate to other people that there mm-hmm. might be like anybody else that happened to overhear this, you know, it might clarify or it might resonate or it might, you know, like knock, knock something loose for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, well, I mean, it, it seems I got to get a, I need to get a mic anyway to record music stuff. So yeah. I'm we'll just, might as well just start a podcast. Yeah. I'm just like, I find writers projects are so fascinating to me just because I feel like we are like a group of people who just, if we, if we if there's something that we want that we don't have we just like find a way to make it like we figure out a way and like I hear that a lot you know it resonates with me what you said about like once you graduate from school like how do you find those conversations and how do you find that support and like poetry readings don't really give it to you so like we have to kind of find these other ways to like communicate with each other that are not like forced so I I think projects like this are 
are cool because and it's it, it was at least when i i mean i assume that it's probably as easy now as it was when i started but it's it's really easy to start a podcast just gotta get like a good sounding microphone mm-hmm. and some i mean if you have a mac they all come with GarageBand, which mm-hmm. is kind of you just plug it in and and go mm-hmm. but yeah i was i kind of hemmed and hawed about it for a little while because i was like i don't know what like i do want to do one but i don't know like all the ones that i was listening to or i was aware of had like a had a like a theme or like a specific mm-hmm. like this is the scope of what we talk about um and i was like well i mean i kind of want to talk about poetry so why not just fucking do it why not just do poetry um cool yeah um Okay, I think that that's gonna be it's gonna be the episode. Um, as always, thank you, listeners, um, for listening. I've been checking the stats on SoundCloud, and there's been a like randomly big influxes of listens in Baltimore, and I think UK got me some. So, whoever you are, thank you for listening. Um, Aaron, do you have any any words that you'd like to leave the audience with? No, I guess, like, if you don't know what an erasure poem is, just go try one. Like, you can make one with literally anything laying around your house. Yeah, it's 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 a whole lot of fun. And, we, like, challenge, it It challenges you in ways that, that real, air quote, poetry doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to work with what is there. Yeah. And that is, that's hard, so. Yeah. Yeah, so go, go, go do an erasure poem. Or do, I don't know, if you've done an erasure poem, do a different type of erasure poem. Um, but, uh, that'll do it. So, uh, until next time. Thank you.